0: Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today is part two of my conversation with Dr. Amelia Nagoski. Amelia Nagoski is the co-author with her sister Emily of the New York Times best-selling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle and the Burnout Workbook. Her job is to run around waving her arms and making funny noises and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. She lives in New England with her husband and two rescue dogs. Now, if you did not listen to part one of this conversation from last week, hit pause on this and go back and listen to that first because we pick up right where we left off in this week's conversation. Like I said last week, Amelia was so generous with her time and I just didn't wanna cut our conversation short. So we turned it into a two-part episode. Another caveat is that in this conversation, there is some PG-13 language. So just beware if you have some little ears listening in. Also, in this conversation, Amelia and I discuss grad school burnout. Now, I'm a PhD student, and so this comes from one of the questions that I asked Amelia, and I just want to give a caveat that when we're discussing grad school, we are not talking about any one specific school or experience, but a system in academia that unfortunately, in a lot of places, exploits its students. Now, thankfully, that's not my experience, but I do know it to be true of grad school at large in North America, and more specifically in the United States states where most graduate programs don't have good support systems in place for students. So that's just my little um, caveat for this conversation. Um, But we're going to jump back into where we left off last week in talking about burnout. And so I hope that you enjoy part two of our conversation. You talk in the book about this idea of you're something larger right Mm -hmm. we all have the the something larger and i think that no one goes into no one that i know goes into music performance and education because they're like i would like to make lots of money and live in a large house and
1: be wealthy (laughs) i want to get that public school teaching money
0: right it's because we feel this call to you know be a part of what you might deem like the something larger the your calling or your your gifting and there's like this sense of belonging and community and service Absolutely. And and because we know that music can make a difference in someone's life. Yes. But do you think that sometimes our something larger can also drive us toward tendencies of overcommitment and burnout? I was in an intense season of burnout last year when I quit a job that demanded way too much of me
1: yeah.
0: as a choral conductor That demanded about four times the amount of hours that I was paid for, contracted for. And I kept getting a, well, we do it because we love it, but we love it. You know, while I was like literally suffering from vertigo and figuring out, like, you know, I was in bed. I'm like, I can't get
1: out of bed right now. And you want me to put on a concert? Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations for noticing that was happening to you and standing up to say very thankful. this is not fair or ethical this is exploitation this is a particular problem uh, for teachers and for church musicians um you you are a paid staff member you have a contract you work specific hours but you are also part of the community and you know when i was a church musician it was written into my contract that i'm you know i attend things i i I have gatherings for the choir and I and that seems completely fair to me because church is about community. But I'm going to count those hours at a party against the hours they would expect me to work that week. It's not in addition. It's included. Yeah. So like, yeah, the thing is that with that, there is a, a misunderstanding between amateur music makers and professional music makers the difference is real in the way we use music in our lives when you're a professional musician you are doing the music as work when you are an amateur musician you're doing it for all the good music does you when you are leading a choir full of amateurs it is your job not to use it as your time to purge your own feelings and all that stuff. It's your time to be responsible for those amateurs so that they can have that experience, so that your audience can have that experience. And the degree to which you get to experience that too will vary quite widely depending on a lot of uh, variables so the problem is that when you become a professional musician you know the thing that feeds your soul is now the thing that puts bread on your table your relationship with it changes drastically now you're not creating as creative self-expression now you are using a skill to crank out work for someone else's enjoyment or approval so when this happens a lot of artsy creative people have talked to me about this and they start to feel like oh i I just don't love it like i used to love it like when i was a kid music was like a gift for my everyday life and now that i'm just like working every day i just don't get that same i'm just not inspired anymore have i lost my touch am i not good enough should i quit should i am am i not really supposed to be a musician and the answer is no you are still inspired you are still have the magic of making music in you you just do it for a job now so you need to find another way to find the creative self-expression, yeah. the spark, the inspiration, is not gonna come through doing work that is for the enjoyment or judgment of other people. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. During COVID, I started like crocheting. Yeah. As
0: like my creative process can like, I can make patterns and I can like, I can make things and then they're cool. And, yeah. um, and somebody told me like, oh, you should start selling them on Etsy. And I was like, <gasps> no
1: yeah, yeah. I actually um highly recommend choosing something you're bad at for your creative self-expression so you don't turn it into another side hustle. Exactly. Can I ask you a question about the
0: bikini industrial complex?
1: Yes, okay. This is a a, a very important topic for my sister as a health educator who worked as a health coordinator on a college campus Mm -hmm. Um, and then for me for totally different reasons. She was helping mostly teenage girls learn to look at their bodies in a way that was about appreciation for what it can do for them as humans rather than just measuring its worth by the size and shape of their body yeah. and I was also teaching college and I had this incoming group of freshmen I was working with and I, we were working as day one we were working on breathing because you can't say unless you can breathe right and they just they weren't finding it and yeah. I know that like well what I said what came flying out of my mouth is that the bikini industrial complex has given you reason to believe that you shouldn't breathe but here's the truth your belly is not supposed to be rock hard. It's supposed to be round. It's supposed to increase in size when you inhale and then decrease in size when you exhale. And I know you've been told all your life that you have to have a flat stomach, that your stomach needs to be rock hard, rock hard abs or whatever, but that, comes from the Bikini Industrial Complex, which is this consortium of billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry, whose only goal is to get you to spend money and feel bad about your body and and pay whatever you have in order to conform to this socially constructed body ideal. So Emily and I came at it from totally different reasons. Her yeah. for, like the real raw health and me for like the Bikini Industrial Complex. We've all been brainwashed to believe things about our body that aren't true so that they can shame us about our size and shape. And uh, it, it denies us access to to breathing. And yeah, honestly, exactly. I had the same problem with my with my nine year old singers in my children's choir like they would suck in their stomachs and breathe way up in their sternum and oh god like yeah and on top of that
0: Like in in classical music, we're often sort of sliced into the gender binary clothing options. And I have had friends who like vocalist friends who said they've been docked points on their juries because they didn't wear a dress or they didn't wear heels and it was actually written on their forms. Or I've known of a pianist that quit because they were told that they dressed too butch to be a pianist. (sighs) And I think that that also plays into this sort of idea of like, there is a look That you have to be and if you don't fit into that look then you don't belong on a stage and this has to affect burnout right like this managing of people's expectations
1: yes this is another thing that's on the far side of the abyss is for singers in particular there is an ideal like they want to be able to see you looking like you know if you're you know gonna sing donna anna they want to see you looking like Donna Anna with like long hair and a long skirt, wearing these, you know, very pretty shoes. They want to be able to see you in costume as that person. And so what you should wear to the audition is a very specific kind of thing, which is, oh God, just super toxic. And this this yeah. expectation that if you have fat on your body, you're not going to be physically capable of performing. I mean, it's very athletic being in an opera. I think yeah. opera singing is the most difficult job in the world, it's my opinion. And that's just, I yeah, can't be it's yeah. just true. Yeah. I think it's the most difficult job in the world, and also there are such uh, heavy restrictions on what people can look like. Yeah. Um, that yeah. is only just recently, barely starting to open up, as mm-hmm. there are new directors who don't necessarily want to do their Mozart in in corsets and floor length gowns. Yes. Now let's like set it in a modern era, and yes, yeah. you can have butch short hair or whatever. Yeah. Gotta the idea of that for instrumentalists makes zero sense to me i can't see any kind of reason that how a perform an instrumentalist looks would have an impact on their ability to perform and that makes me so angry and i think it just comes out of the deep history of classical music making as being super rooted in the white supremacist patriarchy which also enforces the gender binary there's a conversation going on now among choral conductors of eliminating gender binary outfits Performance attire. I don't know if that's happening in the orchestral and band world, but I have seen orchestras now where they just, all the players are dressed in black, of any kind women wear pants and not just like big old palazzo pants that look like skirts but just like trousers (laughs) yeah yeah so i think changes on the way but it is a very specific way that musicians need to conform to a very specific requirement Mm -hmm. in order to be seen as fitting the ideal it is arbitrary and it is bullshit and we made it up we invented it yes well that's the thing we can just choose not to do it anymore exactly and i have one of
0: my students was chosen to play in this like big recital for getting the top marks in the province. The mother was racing around the morning of the performance because they got sent a dress code requirement. I didn't know. And the mother is racing around trying to find their child a dress code requirement because they don't have that specific dress code requirement. And here I'm thinking like, no, I just want you to get up on stage and play the music. Yeah. And we've now added this layer of stress in which what you're wearing is is also getting judged. And I had read a study that, that was done a couple of years ago that they had the same performer play the same thing for different audiences. One was wearing different clothes, like, you know, for each performance. And when you were dressed dressed the part, you were rated as sounding better. Same person, yeah. same performance.
1: Yeah, I also have an experience as an adjudicator. Yeah. I have tried dressing very feminine in a dress. I sort of have a feeling like that as a feminine-bodied conductor, it will be good for me as an act of service towards other feminine-bodied professional musicians to show up erring on the side of femininity. You know, mm-hmm. ankle-length dress, a bright collar, um, you know, just looking really feminine, and then being a conductor at the same time. And when I conduct, I get things like, oh, I didn't think you'd be such a great conductor. I kind of looked at you, and I this is at a, one of the performances of my college. Oh. As an adjudicator, when I wear a dress, I get treated so differently than, where I wear trousers when I wear trousers I get handshakes especially from the men teachers mm-hmm. it's it's remarkable how differently and how much more professionally I get treated if I'm dressed not not more professionally just more yeah. masculinely Masculine. it is gross yeah, And it's not people's fault. They're not choosing consciously that masculinity or gender binary is preferable. They've just been kind of indoctrinated into the the Wooshnelp, the white supremacist, normative, exploitatively capitalistic patriarchy. When you, uh, <laughs> when you sing it, it sounds a little less painful. And then you realize uh, <laughs> that you have to sing it in order for <laughs> me not hurt as bad. Right. The clothing thing
0: is something that I'm going to, I will, I will fight until the end of my career on that one. But um, even in my undergrad, I was reading through the requirements because I I had transferred halfway through and at
1: my first school, I could wear, I could wear pants. And this I do think is a classical music specific thing. Yes. This is not a thing like sports teams wear gender neutral uniforms now, you know, but in music, we're still stuck We're still still stuck stuck in this very old-fashioned Victorian idea of what performance attire is. Let's absolutely do talk about it and make sure that people are aware of it. And that the capacity to change is just with us. With us saying, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, What are some
0: preventative measures that musicians can take to prevent burnout? And to tag onto that, I'm going to be a selfish grad student and say, how can we avoid burnout? Because graduate students are often cheap labor and we're balancing things like, Full-time jobs and research and we're teaching classes and we have to do committees and et cetera. How can we prevent burnout?
1: Um, I'm gonna cut right to the grad student question because it answers the other question too. Okay, please. The cure for burnout is not self-care. There's nothing any individual can do to fight this exploitative system that is designed to induce burnout in mm-hmm. people who lack access to power. Um, That's why the cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Unionization and other just casual ways of protecting each other from exploitation and, and impossible demands. There need to be rules codified that say that that kind of exploitation of graduate students is not allowed. I mean, the academic system is grounded in feudalism, right? It's the place for the sons to go while the father's still alive before the heir inherits. And so that the spare can, you know, have something to do before he goes and I don't know, spends all the money or becomes a lawyer or whatever. Like that's what (laughs) academia was for. And we have built a system where the students are now not only a source of labor, also a source of financing. So it's like now the serfs pay for the privilege of of being handed out small amounts of what the baron has to offer that's how academia was originally designed and it's how it continues to be and it has gotten so much worse so fast when i attended college in the 90s i went to a state school and i graduated debt-free because It was affordable. It was a few thousand Mm -hmm. dollars a year. And the cost has, you know, exponentially increased since then. So the answer to your question is, how can graduate students avoid burnout? The answer is, exist in a system that's not exploitative. (laughs) Uh, Eliminate the exploitative system that is in place, which is, you know, grounded in a thousand years of oligarchy. That is not super helpful. So what I'm going to say is that the good news is Before the system changes, the Mm -hmm. system's the thing that's inducing stress response cycles, kicking them off, you can deal with the stress in your body. Mm. Um, You're not going to be able to do it alone because you're institution is going to be telling you you don't deserve sleep sleep is for the week sometimes your fellow students will be saying that to you yeah. and that when you're like i cannot work today i need a day to rest they're going to be mad at you for letting them down and Must for nice. making them yeah. take all the work when in reality you are not doing that to them the institution is doing yeah. that to them it's like you're in the hunger games and you're in the arena yeah. <laughs> and like what do you do? do you do you kill each other or do you point your arrow up at the arena itself and destroy the game and the game makers and go after the system of yes. artificially induced scarcity that's how it's gonna change and i think uh, graduate student unionization is a very good idea of a way to go it's tried and true in some places but in some places even faculty are not allowed to unionize or talk about their salaries it's all very oligarchical and feudalistic um But in the meanwhile, you can turn toward each other with kindness and compassion and say, I need the day off tomorrow. And the other person says, I also need the day off tomorrow. And you both take the day off and then the faculty are left hanging. And um, the problem with this is that, and this is one of the reasons I burned out in grad school is because these people who are exploiting you also have the power to kick you out. They have the power to make or break your career and that kind of exploitation is just accepted as normal and natural and it's not Mm -hmm. the system is wrong and broken and uh while we work on fixing it by not turning against the other students who are locked in that broken system, trapped in the exploitative cycle. Meanwhile, we care for each other. We yeah. tell each other that we deserve rest. We deserve care. We deserve time for ourselves. We joy- we deserve connection with our friends and families. They deserve to spend some time out of a damn practice room and in a <laughs> bar meeting people like that is a thing that human beings need yep. is to connect with other people and the isolation of the practice room is literally bad for your mental health. Yeah, it's bad uh, for your
0: health, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, yes. um, have I answered the question in a way that's at, that's at all coherent, or yeah. did I just babble? And I think okay. you
0: you hit the nail on the head when you said like the answer is not self care, but It's all of us caring for each other. And that is a line that I have said back to myself before. Because that is it. Like um, Kate Bowler says, like, we're built in
1: community. Yes. Like, we are a group project. Yes. Right? I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, community music making feels so good and why people have loved it so much for centuries. Exactly. Actually, for millennia, for tens of millennia. But, I mean in modern society it's always been something that draws people because it taps into this power we have unfortunately the infrastructure we have to train people to to lead that kind of stuff is um super de duper de toxic
0: (laughs) well it has been just like an absolute pleasure getting to talk with you i want to wrap up with our rapid fire questions yeah yeah that answers um can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician you you already talked about it a little bit. Oh
1: right? yeah, yeah. I was in the eighth grade and I was standing in yeah. front of the mirror, waving my arms around to I don't even know what movement it was. From the, in retrospect, terrible Angelid Weber Requiem. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I distinctly remember this. Like oh, yeah. this this is what this is I, I am meant to do. Yeah, favorite piece or song to perform. I love conducting music that my choir loves,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but
1: one of my favorite pieces to perform or just to listen to is the second movement of the brahms requiem just something about that whole first Mm -hmm. half of like throbbing pulsing doom uh, (laughs) is (laughs) just just hooks right into my heart and and it feels like it's it feels like brahms knows exactly who i am i love it well i already know this have you been given bad career advice what was it yeah (laughs) i mean i've been told if you can't do it, I can't teach you by obviously a very shitty teacher who couldn't mm-hmm. teach who couldn't me. Teach. I'm sorry, yeah. why are you a teacher if you can't teach people things that they don't already know? Yeah. yeah I. But I. It, it was made very clear to me on a number of occasions mm-hmm. from a variety of teachers that because I didn't have some special gift that they mm-hmm. recognized as mandatory, that um, I was never I was never gonna have it. But guess what? The thing they they thought I was missing (laughs) is a learnable skill that I learned.
0: (laughs) That you needed a teacher to teach you how to do.
1: Yeah, I didn't have a teacher. I I figured it out myself. (laughs) My sister with a PhD in health sciences helped teach me. I love it, that's great. Uh, What's the best musical or career advice you can pass on to other musicians? Don't believe the hype about conservatory programs. Um, It can feel really good, but it can also tear you up. Mm Like, and I know there's this like, oh, they tear you down to, to build you back up new. And that is what happens to me, particularly in my master's program. I was a broken mess when I got out of my master's program, but it really reshaped me to become a much better conductor. um, But like, don't spend $50,000 or go into $200,000 worth of debt for a music degree if you want to be a classical musician. Take private lessons you know, learn some music theory basics. You don't don't get sucked into the trap of Oh, it must be an academic training. It, it doesn't. If mm-hmm. you're a musician, and you make good music, that's enough. Okay. And uh, until the whole higher education system falls and is rebuilt from nothing, I think that being involved in higher ed is can be a trap for people for whom it is financially unachievable yeah. or who socially don't thrive in an academic environment. Yeah, absolutely. What are you listening to right now? Podcasts. Oh, yay! <laughs> I mostly don't listen to music recreationally because, yeah. um, you know, feels like work. Yep, that's <laughs> the most common answer too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. People I- are so surprised when I say that and only musicians are like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally get that, yeah. Actually, I, my I, sister and I presented at um, a music educators uh, conference at the Met. And I'm like, these are music educators. These are my people. And Emily was like, oh, OK. So Emily was like, yeah, when you're driving home from work, you can listen to your favorite music. And I was like, no, Emily, stop. No, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. We don't do that. <laughs> Quit that. That's not what we do. And she was like, no, I thought you're musicians. You really love music. And they were like, "Ha no. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm like, I'll start analyzing or I'm like listening to it. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Or you're like this recording sucks or yeah. why do they make that decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. no why no. would you do it like that? Yeah. Silence. Silence is better.
0: Agreed. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on Loud and Clear. I so appreciated it. I know our audience will just love this conversation and thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, I am just so grateful that I got to speak with Amelia. I loved our conversation and really enjoyed getting to interview her. She's someone whose research I've long admired and respected, and the book Burnout really did have a profound impact on me. So I want to end this episode by reading us out with just the tale and the last couple paragraphs of the book. Don't worry, this is not a spoiler, it's just a teaser. I really hope that you do go out and get yourself a copy of this book and thank Emily and Amelia for writing it and Amelia for coming to talk with us on the podcast about it. Please pick it up from your favorite independent bookstore. I got mine from Singing Pebble Books here in Ottawa. Also, if you haven't already, I would recommend checking out their podcast called The Feminist Survival Project. They have some really wonderful conversations over there. Um, Just two sisters talking, about a specific concept very interesting they talk about a lot of evidence-based research on the podcast and i was super fascinated by it and that's actually how i learned about the two of them and and bought the book burnout is is from this podcast so they have some great conversations over there i highly recommend it okay to close this is the tail end of the book joyfully ever after from burnout so they say joy arises from an internal clarity about our purpose when we engage with something larger than ourselves we make meaning and when we can resonate bell-like with that something larger that's joy and then finally they say wellness once again is not a state of mind but a state of action It is the freedom to move through the cycles of being human, and this ongoing mutual exchange of support is the essential action of wellness. It is the flow of givers giving and accepting support in all its many forms. The cure for burnout is not self-care. It is all of us caring for one another. So we'll say it one more time. Trust your body. Be kind to yourself. You are enough, just as you are right now. Your joy matters. Please tell everyone you know. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you
1: next time.